Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Terence Edwards, a journalist with Bloomberg News in Mongolia. I have to admit that this one came down to the wire. After 19 episodes on schedule, I almost didn't get this one out on time. But Terence graciously agreed to do this a little over a week ago, and it all came together. We discussed how he made it from Long Island to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. He has been in Mongolia for a whole decade, and it's very clear that he knows the country inside and out. We met when I was a reporter in Beijing, and he was a freelancer for Reuters in Mongolia. I feel like when I met him, I thought, who is this guy who might as well be from the moon? Does he even know how to interact with society, having been in the middle of nowhere for so long? Even though I was in Beijing, really not that far from Ulaanbaatar, I too had a wrong one-dimensional view of the country as being solely people living in yurts, or gear, as Terence explains they call them there, and roaming around on horseback. I certainly didn't know that they had their own Mongolian-language affiliate of Bloomberg News or a whole lot of nice Western restaurants. Terence will tell us what it's really like there. But don't worry, he still mentions some yurts and horses along the way. We also talk a fair bit about the coronavirus, but just keep in mind that this was recorded a little over a week ago, so we didn't necessarily have the absolute latest information on hand. This episode was also a bit difficult to get edited in time because the last week was very busy at work. I managed to land an exclusive that was able to uncover a huge problem in regulating logging in Brazil's Amazon rainforest, but also the behind-the-scenes moves by the government to try to sweep the problem under the rug. The Intercept's Portuguese language edition a week earlier had written about five shipments of wood from the Amazon rainforest that had been exported from the country without environmental authorization, been held up at customs in the U.S. and Europe, and then one of the state heads of the environmental agency retroactively gave approval to them, something The Intercept argued is not allowed under the law. I read it with curiosity, but honestly I thought, just five shipments, one state in Brazil and not nationwide? It wasn't exactly a story I was going to chase after. As far as I knew, this was a one-off case of just a small handful of shipments. The way things are going in Brazil, I'm more interested in systemic changes that have a big impact. So I talked about it with coworkers and might have mentioned it to a source or two. Then a source shows me an internal government document from the environmental agency saying, get a load of this. After the whole incident with those five shipments, the national head of the environmental agency, not the state head, decided to completely eliminate these authorizations for all shipments altogether nationally. Instead of enforcing this rule, the government had just gotten rid of the rule. This all matters because without the authorizations, the wood is more likely to be linked to illegal deforestation, which has been surging in the Amazon since the start of 2019 when the new right-wing government took office. The source said some agency employees had taken it on themselves to investigate the scale of the problem, and there were many, many more cases involved. I saw the document. I had one source. Everything was solid, but I wanted to corroborate it with a second source. Talking to these sources over a couple of days, they revealed to me that thousands of shipments of wood had left from one single port in the Amazon rainforest to go to places like the United States, France, and Germany without the environmental agency's authorization during the past year. This was what I needed to show the real impact of this regulation change. The amount of wood sent without authorization was at least 27,000 cubic meters of wood, and possibly a lot more, enough to build hundreds or thousands of houses. I cranked out the story, sought fair comment from all involved, and we pushed it out at dawn on last Wednesday. Then, one day after my story was published, the environmental agency published new restrictions on employees talking to journalists going forward. I can't say for sure it was a reaction to my story, but I'll let you draw your own conclusions. If you'd like to check out that story, I've put a link to it in the podcast description for this episode. Okay, now on to the interview. Again, here's Terence Edwards, a journalist with Bloomberg in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. 
first of all, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. To kick things off, if you could tell me a little bit about your surroundings, what time it is, where you are geographically and physically, and a little bit about what kind of work week you've had. Yeah, so I'm calling in from Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. That is the capital city of the country just north of China. It's bordering, famous for the Great Wall of China that was built to keep out the Mongol invaders. And right now it is Mongolia's Lunar New Year. We call it, or Mongolians call it Sagansar, which I believe translates to White Moon, but it could also translate to White Month. But I think White Moon is the correct translation. And that's a three-day festival. It's actually kicked off with a holiday eve they call Bitun, which was celebrated or observed on Sunday. And then we'll follow off three days of feasting and greeting, you know, relatives, acquaintances, friends, friends of the family who come in. They do some ceremony. They come and eat lots of dumplings. Lots of vodka as well, and it's supposed to be, I like to liken it to kind of a Mongolian Thanksgiving, but over three days. And it must be that it's one lunar month after Chinese Lunar New Year, or what's the timing? Yeah, a lot of people like to joke that Mongolia just can't follow the same holidays as China. There's a bit of a rivalry. <laughs> historically and as well as culturally. Uh, I think, now I couldn't say this for 100%, I think it follows in line with the Tibetan lunar calendar. And what that means is it doesn't always fall on Chinese New Year, but sometimes it actually does. I think maybe the year before last, it might have been the same three days. I'm not 100% if it was the last year or the year before, though. So, yeah, just to explain my job a little bit, I am a reporter for Bloomberg News, kind of... A jack of all trades. If it happens in Mongolia, I report it. And then I'm also working with the Bloomberg TV Mongolia studio, kind of giving intra-organization support, getting some feedback to the producers, getting some content to the producers, working with the talent, working with the talent on both sides from, you know, our proper Hong Kong, London studios, New York studios as well as here in Ulaanbaatar. And when you say Bloomberg TV Mongolia, if you could just explain a little bit about what the difference is between how that relates to Bloomberg TV, the international version. Sure. So if you were to fly into Ulaanbaatar and check into your hotel, you could turn on the TV and you'll see two different channels, one with Bloomberg TV Mongolia and Bloomberg TV, the international broadcast. It would be coming from Hong Kong or New York or London, any of those places. We work in coordination. The local broadcaster is a partner, and I'm here as a representative. But at Bloomberg TV Mongolia, we have 100% local Mongolian staff, and they're delivering that free press Western content. Not to say that the other channels that we compete with aren't free press, they are, but we're delivering news with the data that comes from the Bloomberg terminal and with the rigorous standards that Bloomberg News has. And is it in Mongolian language or is it in English? 
It's presented in Mongolian language. A lot of content from Bloomberg TV is ported, translated, and localized for a Mongolian audience as well. But we also have our own locally produced programs as well. We have a show that's kind of like the Jerry Seinfeld web series, Comedians and Coffee, where... Oh, yeah. Comedians and cars getting coffee. Yeah. Yeah. One of our anchors, he gets together with a local celebrity or artist and drives around drinking coffee in very similar format. You know, you just use that setting as a way to engage your your interview subject. So you've been off work all week. What have you been up to? So at the moment, the Bloomberg TV Mongolian Studios is shuttered. There was the holiday, of course, but also... It was extended because of the coronavirus anxieties that are hanging over the city right now. There hasn't been any cases of coronavirus in Mongolia, but the WHO has considered Mongolia at great risk of importation of that virus, as well as, you know, it's an election year. So authorities are super sensitive to react responsibly and be proactive against this virus. Because if there were any lives lost, they would be on the chopping block come election time. Sure. And so will things finally lift on this coming Monday or will they keep it locked down for a bit longer? So that was the hope. But it looks like the restrictions of movement between the city, restrictions of travel into Mongolia will be extended through March. There was an export ban on coal through four ports to China. That will be extended by two weeks. That's going to hurt the economy, I suppose, I can predict. As well as the domestic economy, there's a lot of businesses that have some restrictions. I go to the gym. My gym is not allowed to operate. The cinemas are closed. As I remember, school has been on suspension a bit longer, I think, until April. Oh, well, we'll get a bit more back to your job. But if we can just start with, if you can tell me a little bit about where you're from, what your family was like, and kind of what growing up was like for you. Sure. I hail from Long Island, New York, much celebrated as well as it is begrudged for kind of Jersey Shore (laughs) and that sort of thing. (laughs) I grew up in the really typical middle class background suburbs of Long Island. If people ask where I'm from, I say we straddle the two counties. But more practically for your listeners, I'm about 90 minutes train ride into New York City. So I grew up a single mother with my twin brother. We always went to the same school, but different classes. We had a similar circle of friends growing up. I'm still very close with my brother, but he has a very different career path. He settled in New York and New Jersey early on. He works as an engineer. He's more been the math science kind of brain, whereas I've been more of the literature and history kind of brain. But he's a good engineer and a talented programmer. When Do after- you guys, I mean, are you identical out of curiosity? No, which is always a disappointment for people. People want to (laughs) see the the doppelganger, but we actually look quite different. So I went through high school. I studied in Western Massachusetts at a school called Western New England College. Now it's Western New England University in Springfield, Massachusetts, where they have the Basketball Hall of Fame. So I did 
a study abroad in Australia. But really what happened was the year I was graduating, I signed up for the Peace Corps. And that is really what put me on my career path because I was interested in journalism, but no way would I be reporting from Mongolia had I not joined the Peace Corps. I served with the Peace Corps for two years, reasonably happy with it. You know, it's a kind of a funny story. But when I went in for my interview for the Peace Corps, I actually had my mindset on being maybe in North Africa or Latin America wasn't on the table because I don't have any Spanish language experience. But I thought perhaps Western or North Africa or something like that. But I I was pretty flexible. I told the interviewer that I'd go anywhere. But I told them, you know, I've been doing a lot of research where people go, and I think I'd prefer to go someplace warm. And I've been reading... I've been reading a lot of uh, volunteer testimonies about this country, Mongolia. You shouldn't send me there. (laughs) A month or two later, I got in the mail. You're going to Mongolia. I kind of shrugged my shoulders and I said, well, let's make the best of this. Wow. I mean, what were your thoughts going into it? What was your impression of Mongolia? Did you have any impression of Mongolia? You know, I knew about Genghis Khan, who, you know, now as someone living in Mongolia for 10 years, that's how long I've been here, I'm kind of obligated to say, Actually, the Mongols call him Chinggis Khan. I knew the South Park episode. I don't know. It's probably mildly offensive. I haven't seen it in some years, but there's some Mongol invaders in Colorado for some reason. Now I know there's some content for that because Olimbatar, the capital city I live in today, calls Denver, Colorado its sister city. So there actually is a Mongolia-Colorado relationship there. Um, I didn't know it tough, though, and I was quite okay with that because I was pretty thirsty to really just learn about wherever I would end up. So I wasn't too concerned about how much knowledge I had about the country I was going to. Of course, my friends and relatives knew very little. At the time, I was working at a newspaper part-time in the afternoons in a retail in the morning. And I told the retail where I was going and why. I remember someone asked if I was from there, which I thought was very strange. My grandmother grandmother, uh, thought I was in Africa until the day she passed, rest in peace. Yeah, there was always kind of uh, Terry's in Mongolia. What's that about? Where's that? (laughs) (laughs) Is it still Terry's in Mongolia or has that changed? Actually, I just went back to Los Angeles, California for a wedding and people really felt obligated to introduce me as the cousin from Mongolia or Terry from Mongolia, which, (laughs) you know, for me is a little bit, uh, I don't know. I like to think I'm more than that, but that is kind of my career, and I have adulted in Mongolia, I would tell people. <laughs> sure. And what did you study in university? Was it related to journalism? Yeah, I didn't have a journalism option to study in my university, but what happened was after my first year, I knew that despite what everyone was telling me, I wanted to get into journalism. So my first year, I joined the school newspaper, which at that point was dying. And my second year, me and a friend revitalized the local school newspaper and made it a thing again. My whole contribution was the editorial side, whereas my friend concentrated on the management. We recruited a bunch of reporters. 
And that felt really cool at the time. I was also interning at newspapers. But as I mentioned, my school did not have a journalism major. You had a communications major. And what I did was, I think it was called Integrated Liberal Studies, which was make a major. So what I did was I kind of took this very flexible, ambiguous ILS major and popped in a bunch of specifically Journalism 101, 102, 103 courses, my internships, and a lot of political science and economics courses to make my, you know, artisanal journalism major. My study abroad was big on that, too, because I went to the University of Queensland, which offered more journalism studies and courses than my homeschool did. But what happened was, as a kid, I was keen on journalism and writing. You know, I was a big fan of Tintin and Clark Kent's side of Superman and those kind of characters. I liked journaling as a kid. I had a lot of notebooks. You know, I I wasn't very persistent. I would start a journal and never finish it, but I had the seed in there. So as a student in university, I was more concrete. This is what I want to do, and I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And then after graduating, I had that kind of gap year between the Peace Corps and graduation. So it was pretty tough. It was 2008. The job opportunities weren't great, but I was able to find a part-time work at a local newspaper and after serving for two years, I saw that the Mongolian economy was, was doing really well. And I saw there were a lot of opportunities to report, and there was appetite to report on this burgeoning economy. So I just jumped headfirst into it. Yeah, but it sounds like you had as much experience as any college student coming out of university. I mean, I was in a journalism major. I took like three classes and mostly learned about it from the school paper. And yeah, I don't even think I had an internship until I went to China in like 2008. I found a magazine internship for the summer. So you had a fair bit more experience than I probably had coming out. If I were to go back and do it again, I would have done two or three more internships. My mistake was concentrating too much on newspaper reporting because that's what I was interested in. And really, as I think everyone who comes on your podcast will echo, the job is not being good at one thing. It's being really good at something, but knowing how to do lots of things like video editing and filming and podcasting and blogging, live blogging and tweeting, all that stuff's super important. If I were to talk to a high school kid that wants to go into journalism today, I would say, look, figure out what you want to do, but learn all aspects of the business. Work at the local TV station and radio station, as well as the newspaper. And if you're interested in anchoring or something or presenting, again, work at the newspaper, learn how it's written, because it's only going to benefit you. I, I got advice early on to be a generalist, which I don't really agree with anymore. You should be flexible enough to write about all kinds of topics. But I think it's super important to get into your niche. My niche would be Mongolia, but actually I would refine it further to be I'm really good at Mongolian politics and 
the mining industry in this country. Yeah, I mean, especially at first, it's good to be a generalist because you have to latch on to whatever opportunities come along. And also you want to pick up whatever skills you can. So when an opportunity comes along, you can make the most of it. But I'm definitely finding that as time goes on, you need to specialize more and more. Once you're kind of mid to late career, especially, it becomes more important to become known for doing a certain thing well, I find at least. Yeah, I guess that is the better way. You know, start very general, but keep honing into what you can be good at and, you know, be really thirsty to learn about that industry or that country, you know. And so let's get into Peace Corps a little bit. I remember when I met you, I said, oh, do you know this other guy? His name, I believe, is... And you were like, oh, yeah, I definitely know him. I know he didn't make it all the way through. And I feel like a lot of people do wash out of Mongolia. So I'd just be curious to hear about what it was like and whether it was really tough and all that. Well, real quick, it's a bit topical. Because of the restrictions on movement, the Peace Corps is sending its volunteers home right now in Mongolia. So, yeah, Peace Corps... The thing about Peace Corps is it's never any one thing. It's kind of what you make of it. And I jumped into Peace Corps a similar way as I jumped into journalism, where I kind of dived in head first and swam in the direction of the stream, seeing what was needed and what worked rather than trying to swim against the stream, doing whatever I wanted to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. You went with the flow. Very Taoist of you. And so my assignment was teaching English as a foreign language. I am not ashamed to say I'm not the most competent teacher. And I had a good relationship with some of my students, but I, I have a lot of respect for what teachers do and the patience and the persistence they have to work with their kids. It's super important. But I did use that opportunity to do all kinds of different things. We're working in awareness of human trafficking across to Mongolia's neighbors. It's not a huge problem, but it's always kind of a threat to Mongolia's citizens. We did a lot with sanitation, just basic things, because I was living in a rural community on a hill without running water. We had electricity. So drinking clean water, keeping your hands clean, keeping your personal hygiene good. These are all important things that Mongolians, of course, know about. But I felt good about, you know, just doing projects like getting our English club together and making a water purifier with stones and sand in a kind of container. Not super practical and a long-term thing, but it got kids thinking about drinking clean water and stuff. Mongolians don't have a huge problem with that because they don't really drink cold water like we do in the West. Everything is boiled tea. That's how a culture adapts to such an issue. But uh, stuff like that was fun. And I think I built two latrines over the course of my two years (laughs) for myself, one with the kids at the school. And then At the end of the day, you have to understand, though, your job is temporary. So my whole thing was, let's build a relationship with teachers, try not to tick off the administration too much, and inspire a couple kids. And hopefully, maybe they can go a little bit further than they might have been able to do without that foreign American teacher in their classroom. To get some sense, I mean, were you really in the middle of nowhere? How far was it from Ulaanbaatar? And like, how 
big was this community? How big was the school? I had a very cool community. I was not close to the capital city where I live now. I was between eight and 10 hours away. You would come from the city by bus, get out, and then get in a smaller car with about half a dozen or a dozen fellow travelers, depending on the size of the car. And you would always reach home when it was very dark and you couldn't see in front of your face. I lived in a traditional yurt or as they're called in Mongolia, a gear. It's a kind of mobile home for the North Asian nomad. You see them in other countries as well, but never exactly the same style, I don't think. The size varies, but in general, you start with what they call a four-wall gear, which is, yeah, maybe between one and a half, three meters across. It's not terribly large, but yeah. I what was called a five-wall gear, which I thought was luxury when I moved in. <laughs> Too bad that I learned once wintertime came that it's much harder to keep a larger space warm. I was really impressed with my digs when I first arrived. And then by wintertime, you know, January, when it's minus 25 degrees out in the morning, I was quite over that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it must make it difficult to bathe, all that. I would shower once every two weeks, which I think some of your listeners just gasped, but <laughs> it was a bit of a luxury. There was one place you could shower. It didn't always work. It wasn't always hot water and the water pressure was non-existent. It was kind of a trickle, but it did feel really great to go in there once every two weeks or so. I forget about the cost, but it, it wasn't small. It was essentially what was my my stipend? It was two hundred fifty thousand tigrik. Today that would be about a hundred bucks a month. Was so, your stipend or was how much the shower cost? That was the stipend, and the shower cost was maybe twenty thousand tigrik, so eight dollars out of a hundred. So it wasn't small. It didn't feel small, especially when you have to buy groceries and things. The accommodations were already taken care of. That was separate. I didn't have to pay rent. But I was micromanaging my budget every month because, you know, I grew up in middle class. So finances were always kind of a thing. And now I was in charge of my own finances, living in the middle of nowhere. So I always wanted to have that buffer in case there was emergency. So, you know, you wanted to have some extra money. And I, had, I always kept a couple hundred US dollars in cash just in case like, you know, you had to get out of town really quick. Never ha happened, of course, but it's always a possibility. What was the community like? And was it big? Was it small? Was it a proper town, city? I would say it was probably more than a thousand people in that town, which is big. So Mongolia has different divisions of communities and China does. Mongolia has SOMs and IMAGs. So an IMAG is kind of a territory or state or a province rather. A SOM is more of a county and you might have a town inside of that county, but you still call it a SOM. I lived in the smaller unit, a SOM. Again, there was about a thousand people. But the population was actually inflated because some kilometers away, there was some informal gold mining. That was a whole separate community. Very cowboy kind of feel. It felt like the Wild West sometimes because you had these gold miners just a little ways away 
and they would come back and forth through town doing their job. The town was known historically for being a religious center. There were a lot of remnants of that. There were some temples that were defunct. There was a very impressive, what do they call them? It was basically Mongolians have these stacks of rocks all over the countryside that when you travel, you kind of do some ceremony. You walk around them three times. Ovo. That's that's the word. Ovo. Ovo? Ovo. So, yeah, listeners, be patient, especially if you're Mongolian. I speak Mongolian language with a Long Island accent, so... <laughs> always fun. People never like my accent or pronunciation. <laughs> By now, you, you speak pretty well. I mean, 10 years is a long time to live there. Yeah, I'm quite conversational. The trouble in Ulaanbaatar is everyone speaks English. Well, Mongolian, of course, isn't a widespread language. I think around the world, it's 4 million people, 3.2 million Mongolians speaking it, of course. So mm -hmm. in the capital city, there's a lot of emphasis on learning English, Chinese, Russian, German, all kinds of languages that aren't Mongolian. So most people, they don't even want to throw you a bone of helping you speak their local language because they're too focused on improving their own English. I used to kind of insist on sometimes speaking Mongolian, but these days when I go into a restaurant and the waiter or waitress speaks English, I'll just kind of go with the flow. But yeah, I do speak Mongolian. I do do quite a bit of my work in Mongolian. But when it comes down to doing a proper interview, I prefer to have a translator on hand just because I don't want to embarrass myself and I don't want to interpret what they're saying incorrectly. I've only passed through Mongolia on a train and, you know, got off in Ulaanbaatar for an hour. And what can I say about Mongolia? Like there's a lot of empty space. There's a lot of horses. There's Ulaanbaatar was huge, a lot bigger than I thought because it's like really, really sprawling more than tall buildings or anything like that, except for a certain part of town is just my impression from the train. But it just strikes me as very remote feeling, especially coming from China, where, you know, there's millions of people in cities and Beijing is huge. Has being in a faraway remote place ever bothered you much? Or is it the type of thing where you have internet and all that? And so not a big deal? Or have you kind of taken to that sort of life? Or how do you feel about all that? I mean, if you contrast Mongolia with China, you can't find anything more opposite. Mongolia is the least densely populated country in the world. It's about the size of Alaska. If that helps your listeners, it's a little bit smaller. There's 3.2 million people here. The size of the capital city is, if I'm remembering correctly, 1.6 million. Long Island is seven and a half million. <laughs> for, for, <laughs> and I, I think that's the size of a, of a small city in China, correct? Yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of cities that size, seven and a half million, sure. So even the capital city here is quite modest to anything we would recognize in the United States or China. But it's not uncomfortable. Olimbatur is, in a lot of ways, a large town in a city. It's pretty, it resembles its post-Soviet roots, but it's changing very rapidly. A lot of towers are coming up, a lot of construction projects are coming up, a lot of luxury housing, unfortunately. Well, fortunate for the people who can afford that, but not everyone can, of course. And there's a lot of informal housing here, people living in those traditional gear homes still. And that 
is a bit of a tension in the city because especially people of the previous generations, they really still, many of those people prefer the freedom of their, their care lifestyle. But in the wintertime, it can get minus 30 Celsius in the city and you need to stay warm. And they do that by burning coal in their stoves. And that is pumped up directly into the air we all breathe. And when you have so many people burning coal in this very small space, it creates some of the worst air pollution in the world. So that's been the major challenge here, but we have a lot of modern luxuries. The internet is pretty good. We have 4G here. It's very fast. I'm always able to work remotely with my colleagues all over the world. I think if we get into the stories I've written recently, I can talk about how I'm able to work with people in real time in Korea, China, Myanmar, all these places without any problem. It's quite okay here. There are some frustrations. You know, you come from a foreign country into a new space, you're always going to be a little bit challenged by how things are done. But there's not so much to complain about. A little known secret is Olimbatar has some really good restaurant game. There's some great Indian and Western style restaurants here. If you ever come to Mongolia, I'll show you the best oh, huh. one. Yeah, we have lots of cinema that play both local and Hollywood films. As a consumer, I'd like to see more films from the rest of the world. It'd be cool if there were more Korean and Japanese and Chinese films played here as well. But the big demand is actually for the Hollywood films. Marvel is huge in this country. I think the thing I probably most take for granted, but I'm also super appreciative of is Mongolia is a very special country where they call it the oasis of democracy. John Kerry said that when he visited some years ago. It is a very free country. You don't have the issues of harassment and privacy that journalists face in China and some other places in Southeast Asia. I've never felt harassed. I've never felt uncomfortable. I've, of course, had people get in touch with me and not love the reporting I've done, but I've never felt like that person was taking revenge out on me politically or, or anything of that nature. I've always felt very secure and confident working as a free press journalist in Mongolia. Yeah, it's surprising. You think about it's sandwiched between Russia and China, and I guess a tiny bit touches Kazakhstan, maybe. And exactly. But all those countries are not really democratic countries. Yeah. So. And, and Mongolia suffers from its flaws. Corruption is a problem here. There are a lot of people quite cynical about what their vote really means in this country. But turnout is much higher than the states. I think it was over 70% in the last legislative elections. We're looking forward to another round this summer. People are, they're not always super engaged with politics, but Mongolian people are not afraid to protest when they feel like it. And there are groups when it comes to the air pollution and how things are running in the parliament here that will gather together in the central square and protest just as they did some decades before in 1990 when Mongolia had its peaceful transition to a market economy and democracy. People are really proud to 
be politically active, even if you talk to people and a lot of people say they're bored by politics or they're not so interested. Low key, the engagement is quite good here. To go back to the Peace Corps and where you go from there. So you do your two years a little bit more, I think the Peace Corps usually right. And then you get out. And what's your thinking then? Do you head straight for Lulam Batar, go straight for journalism? Did you think about leaving? What happens after that? So I finished in July of 2011. Some months before that, I got in touch with my Peace Corps headquarters and all about there and said, you know, my whole goal with Peace Corps was to see how I could live abroad because I wasn't interested in foreign correspondence. And even though I never imagined I would stay in Mongolia past my service, I was seeing it as something as a really viable opportunity. So I saw what was available thinking, well, maybe I could teach journalism or English in the capital city. And I look back on it now, I kind of cringe. I was really not qualified to teach journalism to anyone. But I think it would have been appreciated anyway, just because I was coming from a Western perspective. And I got in touch with the headquarters and they said, you know, this business organization, the Business Council of Mongolia, they need someone like you to put together a weekly newsletter of all the current events. And I said, well, let me apply. I got on really well with the director of the time. He was an American from Long Island. So it's funny where you run into Long Islanders in the world. So, yeah, <laughs> I took that job and I was really quite happy with myself. I was living abroad. I was working in the news media field. Low key, I was pretty happy not to be teaching English any longer. And it was some months later that a former president of Mongolia was arrested on corruption charges. I had been talking with some local and visiting journalists in Mongolia in the capital city. I had the contact of a Reuters editor, David Stanway. I think you know him pretty well. Yeah, so, David's a great guy. Yeah, David is an amazing guy. When you get into journalism and you're young and green, David is the kind of editor you want to meet because he was super interested in what I was doing and he was super generous with his time and patient with someone that was kind of learning on the job. And yeah, I shot him off an email and that's when my real journalism career started in Mongolia. I mean, I looked at your LinkedIn, just glanced at it quickly before this call, and I, I see like Reuters for seven years. Like I hadn't realized you had been doing work for Reuters for that long. Were you always a stringer? How did it work exactly? Yeah, I think it was about six years. When I first joined, Mongolia's economy was really steaming ahead. In 2011, at 17.3% growth. I think that was readjusted. And it was just a huge story. Like this backwater was growing into this big mining engine and it was right on the border of China. It was a perfect match. And the city, capital city, was growing into this big metropolis. Lots of people were coming to work here. Lots of Europeans and North Americans and some Latin Americans. So it was a really exciting time. What happened was in 2012, shortly after I started reporting for Reuters, some not very well received legislation passed. A Chinese state-owned tried to buy a Mongolian coal mine. There was some really negative backlash. 
and it was just before an election. So policymakers, I think, were feeling a lot of pressure to get something done before the election just a couple months away. So they passed what they called CEPL, the Strategic Entity Foreign Invested something or another. But the point was that Mongolia wanted to keep China as a big trade partner, but keep the actual direct ownership at arm's length. They were very uncomfortable, and this is not only the politicians, but the wider society were very uncomfortable with China coming in and buying up all their resources. I think a lot of nations can empathize with that. So that was passed very hastily, and the repercussions were felt pretty quickly. It really made investing in Mongolia pretty tough, and a lot of the interest started to dwindle. Not the next day, but as the years came on. And then there were some disagreements between the government and Rio Tinto, one of the world's largest miners, over Mongolia's quote-unquote cash cow, the oil togoi copper mine, which is expected to be the world's third largest copper mine, the largest in North Asia for sure. And then there was a balance of payments crisis. And then now we're on the road to recovery. So these were all different segments of Mongolia's history, but at breakneck speed. It's been interesting to cover this roller coaster over 10 years. But were you working full time? Were you a freelancer? How, how did it work? I was a freelancer with Reuters and I was working part time with a lot of different organizations, a local publication, that Business Council of Mongolia newsletter, as I mentioned earlier. And I think a lot of different freelance gigs along the way. I worked for probably half a dozen different publications at the time. It was really nice, though, and I think it's a cool way to do freelance. Have a part-time job to have guaranteed income to pay your rent, and then have your freelance work where you can write about the things you're really passionate about. But if that week's story didn't really work out the way you wanted it to, you wouldn't be out of a home the next month, you know? That makes a lot of sense. So this is when we met. We met when I was at Reuters. It must have been around the time I started, 2014, 2015. I remember David coming over to me and I was on late shift and he was like, oh, this guy in Mongolia is going to send through some copy and you just have to file it. And it was like, I had no idea we had somebody in Mongolia. <laughs> I have no idea what this is about. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I filed a story. I'm almost positive it was about mining. And that's when I first heard your name. And then when you came through town, so I think we got lunch, ate dumplings, only met briefly, but really made an impression. I was like, wow, who is this guy living out in Mongolia? It seems, you know, it's not that far from Beijing, but it seems like a whole different world. And I guess I would, would just be curious, like, if there is a really robust journalism scene there, what that's like. I mean, are you the only long-term foreign correspondent there? Are there others? Just like, yeah, what's the scene like? I remember when we met, and the thing I remember that was going on was the umbrella protests in Hong Kong at the time, because we were talking about that during our sessions. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there's a very small journalism 
community here, but it exists. And again, I feel like everyone does their job very freely. And the coolest thing mm -hmm. I've got to experience here was when I first came to Olimbatar and was starting my career in journalism, it was mostly North American and European folks doing the reporting. I can point to more than a couple individuals who are locals telling Mongolia's story from their perspective. And I think that's very cool and important thing to be happening. It's good to have our kind of objective at arm's length, third person perspective. But I also think it's really important that locals are telling their very local story, if that makes sense. And it's been fun to watch people's careers grow. So you get a lot of experience doing different things, working for Reuters, and then you make this move to Bloomberg full time from the sound of it. And I was trying to get a sense of what exactly does he do for Bloomberg TV? You know, I look you up and I see everything from you calling into Bloomberg TV, the like 24 hour station. I saw you doing a TikTok piece. I mean, I see text pieces cited to you. What exactly all does your job entail? It seems to involve a lot of different stuff. So even though I'm full-time now, my actual job description is not super different from when I was a freelancer. In fact, being a freelancer was probably the best experience I had because I suffer from the same challenges where Mongolia, what's that? Why does anyone want to read about that? I know how to engage editors and get them interested in the Mongolia story. And Mongolia, it's a small country with a small GDP and not a lot of big business deals go down. There's, It's a pretty peaceful country, but it's one of the most colorful countries I think you can find there's so much interesting like huh did that really happen kind of leads that you can do here and when I was a freelancer I worked you know multimedia so I was able to easily translate that to my current job where the TV studio those guys have been doing it for more than five years they're all professionals they don't need me to micromanage them or tell them what to do I get to play back up to them help them get the support they need when they need it and there's a lot of little daily programs things that need to get done. So I'm often to be found at the studio, but I get to kind of do a lot with, especially it was TikTok, but now we're quick take, we've rebranded. That is one of the funnest things I get to do where I just take my mobile phone or my little mobile camera. It's not a GoPro, it's a DJI. I think it's called an action camera. And I get to just do this very guerrilla style journalism where they say, hey, there was a food contamination at this KFC. Mongolians don't want to eat KFC anymore. Or, hey, if you're a traveler and you're kind of the adventurous sort, here's how you can rent a gear for the weekend and how you can get there by horseback. In the meantime, in completely embarrassing myself living in Mongolia for 10 years and not being able to control my horse when it just takes off. <laughs> but it, it's a lot of fun. And I get to work with the different news teams. I do the politics and government beat. I do the macro emerging economy beat. I get to do commodities. It's a lot of fun, actually. I don't think anyone does exactly what I do in the Bloomberg organization or in the world, but I feel super happy to be doing what I'm doing. And yeah, it's fun being able to cover so many topics for one country. Yeah, that seems like a great gig to be able to do all that. And I did watch the one about staying in the yurts. That's the one I did watch. Um, yeah. That was pretty funny. I um, think the editor has 
too much fun uh, embarrassing me on that. But, you know, you got to <laughs> you gotta have a good humor about these things. I knew it would get the views. One thing that I'm curious about is you've been in Mongolia for 10 years. Yeah. Do you think about going back? Do you think about leaving? Do you think you'll be there a lot longer? How do you view that? So, yeah, I never imagined I would be in Mongolia past two years, let alone the 10 years I've been here. And I get asked that a lot. Sometimes I actually don't enjoy that question because I don't have my life super planned out or micromanaged. I enjoy being in Mongolia and what I'm doing here now. I think for the Long term, though, there is the issue of the air pollution in this city, which if I raise a family, that, that's a problem. And a lot of people have left the country for that reason. That's expats, repats, and people who live there their whole lives here. They've had to make that hard decision to move because the air pollution is felt hardest by the young and the old. And, you know, there, there's social issues. Like Japan, if you were to have a child with a local, there is a stigma to being quote-unquote mixed, which is kind of an ugly way to describe someone, but that's how society sees it. I have friends that grew up with parents of different countries, and you hear a lot of nasty stuff about bullying and things like that, and people not ever really seeing them as a national. So there's a lot of aspects to wrestle with there. So I think despite what I chose to do with my plan, to raise a family in Mongolia would be hard for those reasons. But I'm quite happy to be here now and and I, I like to live my career as my life, just from the seat of my pants. So let's see where to go next. And then I guess we can move on to a story that uh, a story that you're proud of. If you a story that comes to mind that you're proud of, that you can walk us through what the story was, how you got the idea, how you did the reporting, kind of the process start to finish. Yeah, so I think it's easiest to talk about the story I wrote. I, I think it was last week which I'm proud of, where there's so much news coming out about coronavirus, specifically out of China, Hong Kong, South Korea, now Italy. And there's another aspect of coronavirus that won't get a huge amount of attention because, quite simply, Mongolia doesn't have any confirmed cases of coronavirus right now. And if we're lucky, we won't have any. That's not the same as Mongolia being virus-free, but it's never been confirmed to have any cases. So what you have is these economies that are much smaller than China's and South Korea's, and they have to protect themselves from the coronavirus because if there was an outbreak, their health sectors could very easily become overwhelmed. So what I did was, well, first I chatted with my editor and said, this is the situation in Mongolia. And my editor said, you know, that's an issue that a lot of countries are going to be facing in the region. So let's make it a regional piece. So I worked with a lot of different colleagues at Bloomberg News in Hong Kong, Japan, Myanmar, Cambodia. And we were able to coordinate and basically just wrap together this ball of string, taking all this string from different countries and show the parallels in the similar challenges these countries are facing with the threat of coronavirus, but lacking in resources being cash, healthcare, workers, healthcare resources and equipment and the very real impact these economies will suffer. Mongolia, coal exports to China 
have been suspended. That's going to have a significant impact. It was said to have a significant impact if it went past March 3rd, but already it's been extended two weeks. If it's extended even further, this will have some very real impacts on the annual GDP growth. So what was the, the story? What was the end product? Was it for TV? Was it a written piece? And how did it all come together with all the different countries? So yeah, it went through many different drafts over the course of two days, but we came up with a prognosis piece, China's neighbors at risk as deadly virus continues to spread. We led with the incident in Cambodia, where Cambodia's leader Hun Sen uh, welcomed personally a bunch of passengers on a cruise ship were basically stranded at sea because no ports would accept them during this high alert for coronavirus. There was some repercussion because later one of those passengers was found to actually be a carrier of the virus. So we went country to country telling the story of Cambodia, Myanmar, North Korea, Mongolia, and how they are responding and potential repercussions they might face if there was an outbreak and their health sectors, their hospitals and their clinics were overwhelmed. And, you know, it was a lot of coordination with my colleagues in Laos, Mongolia, Myanmar, North Korea. But it was a very fun story to write. I felt like in the movies with these political thrillers where you have some dark room and some guy at a television screen clacking away with his keyboard and he's looking at cameras in Atlantic City and then he goes to Las Vegas and he says, enhance, enhance, enhance. Felt kind of uh, very cool to be working with all these colleagues and putting together this regional story. It was a written piece or a video piece? It was a written piece. Um, but then I came on to our local morning programs out of Asia to talk about what I had reported on and answer some questions from our anchors. So next up is the lightning round. It's a lot of quicker questions. So do you feel ready? Let's go. Bring it on. Great. First up, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? I read the New York Times, and I'm super invested into supporting local journalism. So I read Newsday, the Long Island paper, and I pay for that subscription. I also like to pay for independent outlets, too. I enjoy The Intercept. Are there any, for example, publications you look at for work because you're looking for news, you're looking for ideas, say a local Mongolian publication you check to keep a tab on what's going on in Mongolia? Yeah, I'll give a shout out to icon.mn. That's icon with a K. They have some pretty good reporting on the local current events. Uh, of course, it's in Mongolian language, but if your browser, if you have the add-on for a browser tab to translate, you can get an idea of what's being said. And then the next question, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? It can be any medium, TV, written, podcast, whatever. Let me look at my podcast real quick because I have a huge queue. I've been listening to the Chasing Cosby podcast. That's from the LA Times. That's been pretty good. It was one of the reporters that was following the story over the years and reporting on the allegations against Bill Cosby because there had been newspaper reports for years, but it never really grabbed the national attention as it did when that comedian Hannibal 
Burris went on stage and started cracking wise about what he thought was Bill Cosby's hypocrisies. And then it went viral, a recording. So this podcast goes through the years of those allegations and when it finally culminates into this big media explosion. I also want to give shout out to the paycheck it's a bloomberg podcast when it talks that focuses on the wage gap between male and female colleagues at the workplace really good stuff there on youtube you know youtube's for my niche stuff so i really like hodinky which focuses on watches and timepieces there's a guy james hoffman has a great vlog on coffee which is a passion of mine and yeah i, I like lots of crafts like leather work and stuff and i have a lot of channels I watch like that. Cool. Yeah. I've not gotten YouTube recommendations before. And those couple sound interesting. And then what's the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you've consumed recently? So not super recent, but I think you can appreciate that the intercept leaks out of the prosecutors in Brazil that were prosecuting Lula. I mean, that was that was uh, big stuff. And it was fascinating to read uh, what they had uh, procured. Yeah. And that story is still playing out with the wrangling over whether they're going to charge Glenn Greenwald, what they're going to do with him. Yeah, it's had huge ripple effects here. So the leaks, yeah, they were between prosecutors and discussing about the case and, you know, showed some kind of impropriety uh, potentially on the part of prosecutors and coordination, again, potentially with the judges. I shouldn't state it as a 100% a fact. The Intercept was at least able to present that it came that way, yes. And then the next question is, is there any particular subject matter you read into specifically that isn't related to your job? I'm continually fascinated by the watch market. I enjoy timepieces myself. I have some personally, but, you know, there's all these crazy expensive that go for thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in the last few years, there's been record-breaking auctions, pieces selling for the most amount of money. Last year, I think it was a Patek Philippe that broke the latest record going for more than $10 million. I don't recall the figure. It might have been more than 20. But there's a lot of speculation into these timepieces similar to Bitcoin, which was really fun to watch at the time as well. But, you know, I, I enjoy timepieces as a hobbyist. So I, I like watching the market for certain specific pieces that maybe uh, celebrities like Paul Newman or Elvis once owned that, you know, fetch really high prices because it's not just the material value, but there's sentimental and historical value in these things. I know that it is a huge thing. There's a lot of specialist publications and blogs and things like that about watches. Have you been able to put your finger on what exactly you like so much about it? You know, we're in a very digital age and I've found myself more attracted to the analog. I do have some digital watches, but I really love my mechanical pieces. I'm 33 now and it's more common for people to be gaming still, but I don't play any video games, but I really enjoy when once a month getting some close friends together and we put out a tabletop game. I don't know. Maybe I'm a hipster. I love the analog. <laughs> How do you manage your work-life balance? 
And do you believe in work-life balance? When you're a freelancer or you're in a very open-ended job like I have today, you have to be switched on all the time. <laughs> you have to be ready to receive emails from New York about the piece you just wrote or the collaboration someone's interested in doing on the other side of the world. It, it's your responsibility to be aware of these things all the time. But I think you can still have your personal time. And it's important to find an hour in the day where you can work on yourself that's not professionally. For me, I might have a hard day in the office, a frustrating day because something didn't go the way I wanted, but I can enjoy 90 minutes at the gym doing some fitness that, you know, just lets me clear off steam. And I started doing that a couple of years ago because it's not super helpful and maybe even a little unhealthy to do the same at the bar, isn't it? So when you've been corresponding for some years, you get into these habits, but it's good to uh, concentrate on yourself as well. And then is Twitter important to you? Twitter is big. I don't have a huge following, you know, like everything. The work I do is very niche. So Mongolia watchers follow me and I can let them know about the breaking news. I see that as kind of an extension of my duties as a reporter here. What I'm struggling with is Instagram, which I'm seeing more and more become a tool for journalists, but has been less embraced by the platform as Twitter has. So Twitter is really good at promoting journalists with blue check marks and it kind of sees itself as a news platform as well as you know social but quick take is really looking at instagram closely and we're doing more there so i feel obligated to really pay attention to my instagram and i'm still kind of trying to figure out the appropriate way to use it it's a work in progress and then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career who would it be? Yeah, I can't think of any freaky Friday scenarios. I can't think of any names I'm, I want to jump into at the moment. Any dead historic journalists or anything like that? Mark Twain was a journalist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mark Twain wrote for a paper in California very, very, very briefly, I think. Yeah, so let's say Mark Twain. <laughs> and then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? I like to hear people's stories. And when I go into a situation where I'm interviewing or speaking with a subject, I'm trying to hear where they're coming from as well as what they're saying. Like I try to put their words in context. So living in Mongolia as a Peace Corps volunteer really helped me with that aspect of the job because I can feel where they're coming from having shared their lifestyle for two years. And I can empathize with some of the anxieties of the market growth and the direction it's going in and their partnerships with foreign countries and foreign companies. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Worry less in university about taking the theoretical courses and worry less about the parties and do a ton more internships because I think uh, that would have made things a little bit easier, you know, as I got into the more multimedia aspect things of my job. Next question. What is one thing most people don't know about you? I'm not out to screw them. I'm not trying to get you fired. I'm not trying to get you arrested or embarrass you. I'm actually just trying to tell your side of the story. And that's a big part of the job, just that trust building aspect. Hey? Definitely. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists? 
Spotlight was great because I, I remember watching that movie and thinking, wow, this is super accurate because of how many drawn out, maybe to some people, boring scenes because journalism is not, I mean, it's it's not Tintin. It's not an adventure. You, you don't go to the grocery store and walk into a crime scene or some caper. A lot of it is just knocking on doors and making phone calls and cold calling people and introducing yourself to people that don't want to talk to journalists or are very reluctant to tell their story because of embarrassment or what people might think of them when that story is published or people that want to keep their identity private. I really empathized with what they were doing and the fact that they were reporting on this one big story. And, you know, I enjoy all the president's men for different reasons, but how understated things were in spotlight it really painted the job in a accurate way I thought and then that's why I was surprised when it won the Oscar because I didn't see it as that prestige film the way there was that other movie about the Washington Post and the Pentagon Papers was it called The Post? Yeah I haven't seen it but it's called The Post. Yeah I did not enjoy that movie because it, it was hyper stylized and it made everything look so dramatic as you know was where I would say things are mostly humdrum and people are just trying to do a good job and all out of them the negative things people think about the media with it's all very conspiratorial it's you know every journalist is just an individual trying to report a good story and I, I thought spotlight did a good job of that and then it's the final question qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do I enjoy the blue collar aspects of the job. Like there's nothing exceptionally glamorous about being a journalist. So I think I would do something similar. I look at my hobbies and sometimes I watch these short clips of watchmaking and leather work, like booth making and repairs. And maybe I get into a similar line of work where I'm doing a blue collar style job, but in a very precise, specialized way. Sure. So something you're working with your hands, it's more tactile. It's less abstract. More artisanal than artist. Okay, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay, cool. Well, thanks again so much for taking all this time to talk to me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure on my side, too. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Terrence Edwards for Bloomberg in Mongolia. I'll post links to some of Terry's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you could also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information about that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, March 22nd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.